An exquisite day indeed it's been, hasn't it? I realize with that time change, we already have arrived at the darkness of the hour, but we're thankful for the measure of health we each have, thankful for the opportunity that is ours to assemble in this capacity, and to do so with a desire to appreciate not only the love that God has shown to you and me, but also to express our thanksgiving to Him. And in fact, that's expressed in the worship that we offer Him. As we strive to worship Him in spirit and in truth, as we strive to do that by the things He has authorized us to do, what a special time it is, and a time of encouragement, and a time indeed of great edification for all of us. It is the case tonight, as you probably noticed in the bulletin, as well as now on the wall to my left, we'll be looking at an Old Testament character this evening, a character that I'm sure has often been the source of a number of wonderments for you and for me. In fact, as we come across the biblical stage to arrive at the gentleman named Enoch, we of course have so many questions, matters that touch your life and mine, considerations. We'd like to ask this man some questions, no doubt. Tonight, as we think about Enoch, and as we in fact reflect on what the Bible has to say about him, I trust we'll each genuinely be encouraged by thinking about this man that lived so long ago. Some introductory thoughts might well be these. You know, of course, with me that those features that even we find in the days of the Old Testament, those characters, those particular individuals, and certainly among that list would be Enoch. We are taught in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 11, that they especially set before us examples. Examples in some cases of that which is noble and good and that which truly is godly and encouraged. And on the other hand, there are sometimes examples we find that are really very negative. And from them we learn what not to do, and we learn the seriousness of avoiding it. When we come to the bottom of that slide, or the middle part I should say, we have lifted before us some tremendous examples such as those in Ezekiel 14, 14. Three characters are there enlisted as amazing examples of those who have set forth righteousness. Noah, Daniel, and Job. When we reflect on them, isn't it amazing that centuries later... Ezekiel referred to them and asserted what great teachers they in fact could be. I'd like to assert to you tonight, Enoch has much to teach us. He has so much, even though he's not here in the flesh any longer. By inspiration, the biblical record details enough so that you and I can learn much from him. When we come to the bottom of that slide, it simply prompts us to give some thought to Enoch. I'd like to ask you to think about some initial remarks about this man. That's the source of this next slide. Let me go ahead and ask you to notice that there's more than one biblical character named Enoch. So we must be a bit careful. Quite frankly, there's another Enoch who isn't nearly as godly a man as this person tonight that we're going to study. But the other one is, in fact, one of the descendants of Esau. May I suggest to you that we're going to study about this Enoch who is such a noteworthy character. He's only mentioned in about ten verses in the Bible. That's it. About ten. And yet as we reflect upon the relative smallness of the number of verses that mention him, it's easy enough to see in any of it what a great figure he was. Let's see if we can put some of those thoughts together. First of all, you probably can already tell that we're going to be moving back to an early stage in biblical history. 
Such an early stage, in fact, could lead us to appreciate this. Amazingly, you notice that, of course, Adam was the first man, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And as Genesis chapter 5 details it, we move through a few generations very, very quickly. We remember that Adam had a son named Seth. And Seth had a son named Enos. And Enos had a son named Canaan. And Canaan had a son named Mahalaleel. And Mahalaleel had a son named Jared. And Jared had a son named Enoch. One by one we pass through those particular early generations of time and we arrive at this. I would ask you to consider Jared for just a moment at what you and I might consider to be a relatively old age. At age 162, he fathered a son. That son's name was Enoch. And you can immediately tell with me that that name Jared, in the original language and in that day and time, it carried the thought of descent. Why it was that his parents gave him that name in particularly, I do not know. But isn't it interesting that though tonight our interest is not primarily in Jared, but rather in his most noteworthy son, I would ask you to consider Enoch. Jared was the father of Enoch. And we immediately learn from this fifth chapter of Genesis that Enoch was born in the year 622 A.M. Now that might be a particular reference to time that's not the most familiar to us. We're familiar with A.D. and we're familiar with B.C., that B.C. referring, of course, to before Christ, B.C.E., before the Common Era, A.D. after, or Anno Domini, I should say, which refers to the year of our Lord. But A.M. might be a bit more unusual. That comes from a phrase that literally means Anno Mundi, in the year of the world. In other words, 622 years earlier, God had created the world and everything in it, and thus in the 622nd year of the existence of this planet, Enoch was born. You may notice that the name Enoch carries an interesting observation. The word means dedicated. When Jared and his wife gave to this little boy that name, it meant dedicated. It would almost seem as if from the very givenness of that name that this youngster was to be a very powerful and influential figure isn't it remarkable you and I are still reading and studying about him these millennia later? Dedicated. Not only that, might I ask you to notice, when we give thought to Enoch, might we also think about the progeny, or that is to say, his children. Although he had many sons and daughters, the text tells us, one occupies a, spe a special consideration because you notice at the rather young age of 65, Enoch fathered a son, a son whose name was Methuselah. I'm sure all of us have had that name etched in our mind, perhaps from the time we were but young, because Methuselah, of course, lived to be the oldest of any person of which we have any record. He died at the age of 969 years, and yet Enoch was his daddy. Enoch was his father. You might immediately take note that the word Methuselah too carries an interesting observation in terms of its name. Methuselah literally means man of the dart. Now immediately, isn't it interesting? That doesn't seem to carry the same positive thrust as the word dedicated. Man of the dart, we're going to revisit that a little bit later tonight in the lesson, but might we just keep in mind 
This consideration concerning Enoch and also Methuselah brings us to the bottom observations of that slide before us this evening. In particular, perhaps the thing for which all of us race in our mind as we consider Enoch was the very topic read in our lesson text earlier this evening. In Genesis chapter 5, I would invite you to listen as I read again perhaps that most famous reference to Enoch. I'll begin in verse 21, but it says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. And although that verse is so short, and yet it speaks so loudly about the nature and the character of this gentleman named Enoch, and I might ask you to notice there at the bottom, we're going to develop some of those thoughts more thoroughly in just a moment, but just consider the incredible thrust that here was a person who walked with God, but you'll notice it says he was not. Not what? Whatever that means, we're about to see, but God took him. When you think about God taking him, haven't you often wondered? Wouldn't you just like to ask, Enoch, what was that like? So, so very few individuals who have ever walked on this planet have somehow escaped death. And Enoch was one of them. What did it feel like, Enoch? What was it like? What did you experience? What were the unusual peculiarities attached to this? What you and I have, we notice he was not, for God took him. When we come to the close of that slide, I have asked you to notice that this isn't the only places, of course, as we noted earlier, that Enoch is referenced. We also find in the New Testament he occupies a place in Luke chapter 3. And there we might take note that he is actually among those out of whom the Lord came. Jesus is a descendant of Enoch. Not only that, in Hebrews chapter 11, among the great honor roll of faith that begins early in that chapter with Abel and proceeds rather quickly to Enoch. Enoch was one of the members of the great honor roll of faith of Hebrews 11. And then there's one final observation. It comes in Jude the second to the last book in the entire Bible, Jude, verses 13 and 14, refer us to Enoch. All of that being said, let's begin our journey as we look more carefully at the gentleman named Enoch. First of all, I've selected what appear to me to be a few things that you and I might take and use them to build some interesting observations about him. First of all, it seems entirely proper to refer to Enoch as a prophet. Let's see why that might well be. In the book of Jude, that text I mentioned just a moment ago, let's look at those verses that make reference to Enoch and see what it is that they say and see how they refer to this gentleman. I'm again begin, beginning to read in the 14th verse of Jude. The text says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, 
and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There seems to be no question that you and I could properly refer to Enoch as a prophet. After all, what does a prophet do? And throughout the ages of the Holy Word of God, what did prophets accomplish? The word prophet, as it occurred in the Old Testament, literally meant to bubble forth with the things of God. A prophet had a burden from the Lord upon his heart, and he proclaimed it regardless who the audience might well have been. Some of those prophets, in fact, stood before the kings of the Old Testament era and sometimes rebuked them. Didn't Nathan rebuke King David? Didn't Gad also on another occasion rebuke also King David? Wasn't it true that other prophets such as later Amos stood toe-to-toe, if you please, before the civil authorities and rebuked them for their ungodliness? Amos chapter number 7. We notice, what is it that Jude reminds us here about Enoch? First of all, Enoch also the seventh from Adam. So immediately we have an interesting observation. The seventh from Adam. If we go back to Genesis and start counting the generations, Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalaleel, Jared, one by one, sure enough, you arrive, Enoch was number seven. So we know who we're talking about. It's exactly the Enoch of whom we spoke earlier, the one who was not, for God took him. That Enoch, it says in Jude verse 14, he prophesied. And there that verb reminds us, then if he prophesied, he occupied the office and the role of a prophet. I suspect that to many of us, that's an interesting consideration. As we think about the prophets of the Old Testament, we often think about Isaiah or maybe Elijah, perhaps Daniel or Ezekiel or Hosea or Habakkuk or one of the others. But you'll notice Enoch lived centuries and centuries before any of them. And yet he also prophesied. At that point, that also informs us otherwise that Enoch was then blessed to have the Word of God at his disposal. Isn't it interesting that Enoch didn't have a Bible like you and I have? He lived millennia before the Bible was written. But inasmuch as he lived in that patriarchal age of time, God directly shared with him just as he did the other patriarchs like Abraham and Noah and Adam and the others. God informing them directly and immediately of that which was His will. And so it was with Enoch. Not only that, notice what one of the prophecies that Enoch uttered was. It's fascinating. Jude verse 14. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. Now immediately, who is the Lord to whom Enoch referred? Keep in mind again that Enoch was born in 622 a.m. He was born thousands of years before Jesus was ever born. And yet as he looked down the stream of time, Enoch referred to the Lord, Jesus Christ. And verse 15 says, "...to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed." and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Remarkable, isn't it, that here Enoch, who lived so long ago, nonetheless spoke about not just Christ, but he spoke about the second coming of Christ, not his first coming, 
For you'll notice, he says, he's coming with his saints. And the New Testament is filled with references reminding us that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back the second time, he'll be accompanied by the marvelous matter of those saints. Paul often mentioned that in 1 Thessalonians. In fact, the last verse of each one of the first three chapters points us in that direction. Jude spoke about, or rather Enoch spoke about those things, but that's not all he said. Verse 15, the Lord Jesus is coming to execute judgment upon all those that are ungodly. Isn't it true that Jesus is returning? And when He does, He will execute judgment upon the ungodly, the unfaithful, those who have been disobedient. And yet, Enoch spoke about that very matter long, long ago. Might I ask you to perhaps consider these comments? I have asked you to think about some of the verses in the New Testament from other inspired individuals that harmonize so completely with this. For instance, in Matthew 25, 32, we have on that occasion the express statement that Jesus is, of course, returning and He's going to execute a powerful judgment to those on the right. They're going to be the ones blessed, entry into the joys of thy Lord. But to those on the left, to those that are the goats, Jesus expressly will say to them, Depart from me. Although they had opportunities to obey, they had chosen not to do so. As I mentioned earlier in that First Thessalonian letter, at the end of chapter number 1, waiting for Jesus to come back with His saints. In First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, that same express matter is stated for us again. And isn't it exciting? Our heart thrills to consider the majesty of that moment. You'll notice further that Enoch stated it like this. He's coming to execute judgment. I find it remarkable that again, Enoch referred not to the Lord's first coming, but to his second. And as he made reference to that, He's going to come as a judge. Don't we quickly think of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. He's coming as judge. And doesn't our heart thrill to consider the famous words in John 5 22, when there the God of heaven bequeathed to Jesus the capability as judge. Maybe it is in final matter to that. It would seem to me we have entire right then to make this passing observation. I suppose that many of us continue to be so thankful for, of course, the New Testament. The completeness of that perfect will of God and the great blessing that comes with it. And maybe we on many occasions have been somewhat saddened to think about how little sometimes they in the Old Testament knew. They didn't have the Bible that we do. And they didn't have the full revelation of the coming of Jesus Christ either. But in light of what we've seen Enoch know, maybe they knew more than we think they did. As God directly conveyed to Enoch and Noah and Adam and the others the truths of His will, maybe they had a keener understanding about the coming of the second coming of Christ than we perhaps understand. It's clear that Enoch knew a lot about it. It's clear that Enoch understood it very powerfully. And it's also clear he shared that with others. He prophesied. If Enoch then was a prophet like that, 
and one who spoke with such incredible truth about something that was going to happen so many years in the future. You and I close that slide by wondering, what else does the Bible say about Enoch? What else is true about him in addition to being a prophet? Well, let's look at this next slide if we mind. So much might well be noted about the faith of this man, the faith of Enoch. Let's put some of that together by revisiting Genesis chapter 5 for just a moment. In this chapter that first makes mention of him, we immediately notice the following. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And then verse 22 says that Enoch walked with God. Now that same statement verbatim is found two verses later. He walked with God. One of the things that's so impressive about Enoch is that he walked with God. Might you and I notice some of these things? First of all, as we noted earlier, the New Testament does emphasize to all of us in Luke chapter 3 that this same Enoch was in fact one of the forefathers of Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ came through the lineage, if you please, of Enoch. Not only that, notice what else we learn about this gentleman. As we mentioned in verse 5 of Hebrews 11, the tremendous record given to him in relation to that honor roll of faith. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Might we take note, that translation was by virtue of his faith. It says by faith that happened. It wasn't outside the realm of faith. It was through his faith or by his faith that that translation took place. The translation whereby he did not see death. Well, surely in addition to that, you and I can now ponder this. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, we're told in Romans 10, 17. So therefore, when we then read about that by faith Enoch was translated, that faith always and only has as its source, of course, the Word of God. One more time, we conclude God had spoken to him, conveyed to him the matters needful in order for him to live as he was supposed to live. When you and I think about faith coming by the Word of God, that of course points directly to you and to me still today. If we are to walk by faith, we are to walk of course by virtue of that which is the Word of God. Following His statements, following His commandments, we don't look for faith elsewhere. It's not derived in any other source. It doesn't come in dreams and it doesn't come by other particular means of assessment. It comes from the Word of God. No wonder then Enoch, though lived so long ago, how powerful the example can be. I would ask you in light of that to consider this. It is stated of him two times that he walked with God. In fact, I chose that as the title to the lesson, Enoch walked with God. You and I might pause to then consider the particular time in which Enoch lived. Question, was it a time known for its godliness or was it a time known for its ungodliness? You and I remember what happened in the days of Enoch's child Methuselah and what happened in the days that came in the generation just following that one, the flood of Noah's day. And in light of that, we quickly remember what was said in Genesis 6 verse 5 about the people who lived on earth. 
the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. We shouldn't think that Enoch lived in a time when the vast majority of people on earth were nice, God-fearing people. They weren't. They were evil. They were choosing the pathway that was wrong. They chose to do what was not pleasing in God's sight. They acted and behaved in ways that were unacceptable before God. And yet it still says Enoch walked with God. You have to be a bit impressed with the courage that took and with the fortitude that took and for the degree of consistency that took. You and I, of course, live maybe 80 years, maybe 90, perhaps 100. He lived 365 years. Now, admittedly, 300 of them were after Methuselah was born, we are told in the Bible that for 300 years he walked with God. What about you and me? If he could do it for 300, could you and I do it for 50? Maybe 60? Perhaps 70? It doesn't speak too well if he could do it for that long and we can't do it for 10 or 20. Enoch walked with God. Maybe this would be an interesting time to observe. As far as I was able to tell, there's only two people in all the Bible of whom it was exactly and literally said that he walked with God. We've seen one of them. The other one is in the very next chapter. Turn over one chapter to Genesis chapter 6. And notice a little comment made in this chapter about a biblical character. Might I ask you to notice in particular verse number 9. Verse number 9 of Genesis 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, thankfully, we know there were many others who did live in a productive and a godly way, but isn't it interesting only two individuals are such that it was exactly said that he walked with God. One was Noah and one was Enoch. May I suggest to all of us tonight that it is a noteworthy thing to walk with God. And that phrase, given the fact it's used so unusually and so infrequently, surely there's so much to consider. May I suggest to you, I suppose, that there would be no finer epitaph that could be written on anyone's headstone than that. He walked with God. She walked with God. I would submit to you, if that could be said, that'd be enough. And yet it was said of Enoch twice. He walked with God. What about you and what about me? Do you walk with God? Do I? May I ask you to consider that that word walk signifies not just a happenstance occurrence, and it does not have reference to something that only occurs every now and then. In fact, the word walk is so frequently employed in the Scriptures in reference to a consistency, a constant, an ongoing behavior and conduct. You and I can remember it so easily when even the Apostle Paul used it that way in Ephesians 4.18 when he referred them to the encouragement by which one could walk in a constant basis in light of fellowship with God. You see, can two walk together except they be agreed? The famous question of Amos 3 verse 3. You'll notice that was all embodied in this reference to Enoch. He walked with God. I would hope that could be said of all of us. 
you'll notice as we think about walking with God, the Hebrews writer would say it slightly differently. In Hebrews 11.5, Enoch pleased God. Can you imagine the excitement that would come when you think about your life or mine bringing a smile to God's face? Because He's pleased with what we do, what we say, and how we go about those things. And yet that apparently was true for Enoch. He pleased God. I suppose today we often think about pleasing somebody else. Think about a little boy or a little girl and the excitement that they feel when that son can do something that makes dad proud. When dad's pleased with the way he does it and how he goes about that, no little boy gets any bigger excitement than that. Or that little girl who finally does something and her mom is so proud of her. Maybe you and I can see here the Heavenly Father was pleased with Enoch. As we close that slide, isn't it marvelous to consider the kind of man that he was? He walked with God and he pleased God. At this point, perhaps it's interesting to observe this. We read it earlier, but didn't cast a spotlight upon it then. But back in Genesis chapter 5, you'll notice verse 21 says, Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. I'm sure like you, I've often wondered, what about before he begat Methuselah? What kind of man was Enoch like the 65 years before he fathered Methuselah? The Bible doesn't say. I hope we can all ask him someday. Could it be that maybe earlier in his life, Enoch was not the most faithful man in the world? Maybe he had difficulties and problems in his life. But after fathering Methuselah, maybe he understood the urgency of the moment. Maybe he understood the incredible obligation that was his to influence this boy, Methuselah, the way he ought to go. Perhaps so. At the very least, we notice what the Bible has told us. As you turn from that slide to the next one, we've so far learned some interesting things about, about this person, Enoch. We now come to this one. I'm sure we have, again, often thought about his translation. What is it that took place? What does the Word of God have for us to consider in light of his translation? Well, perhaps the comments might follow like this. We again understand that death is an appointment for everybody. In Hebrews 9 verse 27 it says, "...as it is appointed unto men once to die." And after this, the judgment. Again, Hebrews 9, 27. A certain appointment and no one is able to escape it under the normal procession of life. We do realize that if the Lord will returns during our lifetime, there won't be that same avenue of physical death, though there will be a translation. There will be a changing of which Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. But maybe in light of that, we notice... Again, as far as we're able to tell, only Elijah is the other one of whom he was able to escape death. When we arrive at the life of Elijah and study in 2 Kings chapter 2, his departure from this life, you may remember, in such an impressive way, he rode a chariot, a whirlwind out of this locale known as earth. But we notice he didn't die either. As you reflect upon those things with me, what does this word translated mean? 
the literal word is in Hebrew and later the New Testament one in Greek literally means to transfer or to change. And I would ask you to notice impressively the text expressly says he was not for God took him. And that phrase is such an intriguing one. He was not for God took him. The statement that he walked with God, the statement that he pleased God, apparently was sufficient to allow us to appreciate he was not. God took him. When we develop that further, we now apparently are able to conclude the following. Enoch was translated directly into that Hadean realm. Now we all know at death, that's where we're going to be heading as well. We pass through the avenue, the channel of death, in which the Spirit departs the body, James 2.26. And as we do that, we, of course, arrive at that destination in Hades. We remember that Lazarus was there in Luke 16, that place of comfort and bliss. The rich man was there too now in a place of torment. But we appreciate that there was this realm in which these souls, these spirits were in fact dwelling. Thus, we notice that Enoch apparently was translated instantly from this place into that one. As he did so, you notice that particular translation is described, of course, using this word change or transfer. Maybe it's interesting to notice we perhaps should be of this position. I find it interesting that on two occasions the Bible says he was not. This text before us, and again in Hebrews 11 verse 5, In fact, the Hebrews writer goes on to say, He was not found. Does that indicate that after Enoch was translated, there were people looking for him? Does that suggest that there were people, maybe his wife, maybe some other people that he knew well, that suddenly, where's Enoch? The text says he was not found. That would suggest apparently somebody was looking for him, but he had been translated into that Hadean realm beyond this one. As all of that took place, you'll notice that realm now is not heaven. John was very explicit when he said in John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time. And it's certainly unbelievable to think someone could be in heaven and not see God. And yet that was written in John 1.18. It thus appears clearly that Enoch wasn't taken to heaven immediately. He's still in Hades. He's awaiting that second coming of Christ just like all the others who've ever died. Surely, in light of those things, we close that slide by noting, don't you find it intriguing? Those who are alive when Jesus returns, the text of the Bible says they will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 2, they'll be changed instantly. They'll put on an incorruptible body and give the corruptible one, if you please, away. I wonder if their change will be somewhat like that which Enoch experienced. Changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Maybe what Enoch underwent, they will as well. It is interesting to consider, isn't it? That translation, that circumstance relative, of course, to that leads us, though, to note one difference. Notice that Enoch was not found. Now, when Jesus comes back, there won't be anybody looking, of course, for everybody who's going to be changed, the good and the bad. Maybe all of that brings us to one final slide. 
and the lesson then will draw to its close tonight. It certainly seems entirely reasonable and fair to cast a very brief spotlight on that phrase, to walk with God. After all, of all the things you and I consider concerning Enoch, and what a great statement that is, don't we want that to be said of us? Above all things else, don't you want that to be said of you? I'm sure we all do. Because we love the Lord and we know what heaven is and how it awaits those that are the faithful. So as you look at some of the features of what does it mean to walk with God, many, many things could be said about that. We could easily be here till midnight and well past, but we won't do that. But to walk with God. We stated earlier about Amos 3 verse 3 that can two walk together except they be agreed? The first thing that might be noted is if we're going to walk with God, we have to agree with Him. We have to see things His way. Walking by faith is not a matter of walking when it's convenient. It's a matter of walking with Him even when it's not convenient for us because we trust that God always knows what's best and His way will always work out for the better. Don't we read in Romans 8, 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8, verse 18, only ten verses earlier, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. To walk by faith is to walk trusting Him, to take care of us, to submissively... Um, obediently and humbly follow His will, and that appears to be what Enoch did. In fact, you'll notice, the answers to life's greatest questions are then things that you and I, because we walk with God, we know the answers to them. It is a remarkable thing, isn't it, to consider that the human family stumbles and falls over all kinds of great questions because they look in the wrong places for the answers. What's the purpose of life? And why am I here? And what happens after death? Humankind doesn't have the foggiest idea apart from the Word of God. But yet with the Bible, walking with God, we know exactly why we're here. And we know exactly where we're going. Because we walk with God. Notice walk identifies a place of destination. We're headed somewhere. And we know that's heaven. As long as the world misses that point. How sad, how miserable. Not only that, you'll notice a peace that comes your way and mine, and yea, to all those that walk with God. The peace of God passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. You and I believe that because we trust in it. We've often been buoyed upward by it. There is a peace truly that is absolutely incredible. Enoch apparently had it. How much grander do you and I have it because now we have Jesus Christ who's already come. Enoch lived before Jesus ever came. Enoch never had the blessing of the blood of Christ. You and I do. Beyond that, notice what an incredible defense you and I as Christians have because we walk with God. Didn't he say, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. God said that. The Lord Jesus Christ affirmed it. I'll never leave thee. Don't you love that sentiment? So often those in the world 
turn against us. They say bad things about us. They insult us. They stab you in the back. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. Don't you love walking with God? If for no other reason than that one. But beyond that, consider the incredible blessing of prayer. To lift the concerns that are on our shoulders and give them to Him. In fact, He said, I want you to give them to me. Because they're too heavy for you to bear by yourself. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16 And you and I turn to Him time and again in prayer. Don't you feel so much better when you allow Him to take the burdens of your heart and to deal with them in His own good time and will? The comfort that's ours. We serve the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Not some comfort, not part comfort, but all comfort. It's Him. Don't you love serving Him and walking with Him? Maybe the last two. You and I are members of that body known as the church. That precious body of the saved, Ephesians 5 23. That organization to which those that are saved are added, Acts 2 47. And we're part of it. The wisdom that it portrays to the heavenly beings, Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, is a manifest token of the wisdom of God. Aren't you thankful to be a part of that body? Finally, what about love and hope? You and I have hope because we walk with God. If you're not walking with God tonight, you don't have hope because it's not promised to you. I believe as we've studied Enoch this evening, we've studied a lot of things that are very encouraging. In the short amount of time remaining, let's close our lesson like this. We've learned about some initial comments concerning Enoch. We learned that he walked with God and we've learned that he was translated, he should not see death. Although that may not be the case for you and me, namely we will have to die if Jesus delays his coming. Nonetheless, we can hold dear to those thoughts, namely of walking with God. Surely, we highlight the fact he was a prophet, that he walked by faith, and furthermore, that he was translated and he walked with God. If you tonight are not walking with God, why not make some changes ere this service comes to a close? Make determination. As you do that, if you are one who has never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, don't you want to start walking with God tonight? You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him, but you have veered off onto a tangent path, you veered off onto a path that does not lead anywhere good, come back to your first love. Jesus, in fact, has a pathway, a straight and narrow pathway that leads to everlasting life, and He wants you to walk it with Him. If you'd like to come back tonight to your first love, to ask for prayers of brethren, we'd be delighted to pray to God for you. If we could help you in either of these ways, that you might walk with God and be like Enoch, why don't you come even now while together we stand and while we sing?